Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Progress City Radio Hour. I am Jeff Crawford, and I am happy to be joined by my brother, Michael. Michael, how are you doing? I am great. Very excited for our, this fantastic voyage we're about to set off on. That's right. We are working our way through, at this point, the lands of the Magic Kingdom in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. And last month we had Main Street USA and we were joined by Eddie Sato. We had two great interviews with him. That was a lot of fun. And uh, Mike, where are we at this, this month? Well, this month we're going through the castle into Fantasyland. The most magical land of all. And uh, man, we've got a lot coming up. That's right. We realized when we got into this that uh, we have so much, in fact, that we are going to do four episodes. We are going to chop our themed episode right down the middle and split it into two episodes. And we have two great interviews coming up, which we'll get to in a bit. But uh, all this is thanks to our Patreon supporters who are helping us produce all this content. Right, Michael? Yes, absolutely. I Like I said the other day on Twitter, this is podcast thing is getting out of hand because we're going to have four weeks in a row of content, and uh, that's a first. We've had three before uh, on a few occasions, but this is the first time we've done all four. Uh, two themed episodes and two interview episodes. And, man, yeah, we couldn't do it with the Patreon folks. So uh, if you're interested uh, in helping out, we encourage you to go to patreon.com slash progresscityusa for all sorts of events. Because in addition to our four episodes, uh, Patreon people at the silver level uh, will be joining us, as always, for our monthly live chat. Which has been so much fun for me. Uh, you know, you do the bulk of the work, but... Uh... I'm having a blast putting together these live streams and uh, it's great to talk to people. Uh, if you're interested, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash progress city USA. But uh, one of these days we'll, we'll probably do a public one. So people who, who don't know what it's like can get in on it, but uh, it's been so much fun. Yeah, it isn't just, I mean, there's some of us goofing off, but it isn't just us goofing off. We usually uh, talk about what we've talked about in that month's episodes, have as many rare pictures as I can dig up and some fun video. And so it's a little sort of multimedia uh, accompaniment to that month's podcast. Our next one will be on April the 24th, which is a Saturday evening. Uh, we usually do them at 9 p.m. Eastern standard time and uh they're a lot of fun so if you're interested in more about what you're hearing this month check it out yeah try it out for a month see if you like it um there's some other perks along the way uh but yeah please and thank you to all who are already doing it we really appreciate it so fantasy land this is uh you know i talked about on main street i was at gainfully employed at city hall but fantasy land is where i was first employed it's very near and dear to my heart i was employed in summer of 1999 on college program in fantasy land west and originally at the skyway i trained around fantasy land west so i got a lot of love for fantasy land it's you know it's like the uh the original kind of in a way yeah exactly it a lot of love there a lot of 
Fond memories of things past there. Speaking of the Skyway, a great missed attraction uh, that I have many fond memories of. And so, yeah, as we said, there's 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 quite a bit to talk about, quite a bit of history there. So what we're going to be doing, like we said, we're going to kind of chop up our main episode into two pieces. So we're going to have our Remember the Magic segment cut into two. We're going to have uh, some interviews. Uh, who is our interviewee this month, Michael? Well, our interviewee this month is uh, someone who not only is an expert in the creative side of Walt Disney Imagineering, but also in the history side. So someone who's really fun to talk to. That's Mr. Tom Morris. Mr. Tom K. Morris, uh, formerly of Walt Disney Imagineering. Uh, you know him from many, many projects from Fantasyland in Disneyland Paris to Hong Kong Disneyland to uh, Journey into Imagination. Many projects we're going to talk about. But he also has a very special historical insight into the origins of Imagineering, into the early days of Imagineering, and into how a lot of this Walt Disney World came together. So he's an extra treat to talk to. Yeah, and for this, uh, for these episodes, we had him put on his historian cap, which is just, he has an amazing amount of knowledge. And, you know, poor Tom, he since he wore two hats, uh, he had to get double the interview. So we're going to have him as part of all four episodes because <laughs> he has told us so much and shared so much and has been very gracious with his time. You know, this this group of uh, Imagineers and Eddie Sato is one as well, that these people who know so much about the company are just really, a really special crew of Imagineers and, and Tom knows tons. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, like, as you say, very generous with his time. We really appreciate it because uh, we're working him hard this month, all four episodes. Well, I guess we should get to it. We've got a lot to do. And uh, but one more programming note I would like to say is we're going to try to make these episodes a little bit shorter since the long episode would have been way long. Uh, if you like the episodes being this short, let us know. And uh, you can always email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. Uh, let us know what you think about it. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have more episodes more often. So anyway, we always welcome that feedback. But. Let's get into it right now, and as always, we will check in with Walt. We cross the moat through Sleeping Beauty's castle into the world of imagination. Once here, we can fly with Peter Pan to Neverland, wander with Alice through Wonderland, ride Cinderella's pumpkin coach, in fact, anything your heart desires. Because in this land, hopes and dreams are all that matter. If Main Street USA is the land that most represents Walt's childhood and interests, Fantasyland is the land that most reflects his work and career, and a lot of life experience along the way. Early inspiration for Walt would come at the age of 15, when he saw the silent film Snow White, starring Marguerite Clark in Kansas City. This movie was based on a 1912 Broadway production that also starred Clark, and had several departures from the original Grimm Brothers fairy tale, that would influence Walt decades later. This movie was shown at a party at the Kansas City Convention Center, where four prints of the movie were shown simultaneously on a square movie screen with a live orchestra providing the soundtrack. That seems a lot for uh, 1916. 
Yeah, very fancy. In 1918, Walt would be off to Europe to serve as an ambulance driver for the American Red Cross in World War I. Walt would be stationed for a time in the luxurious-sounding Chateau Saint-Cyr near Versailles, though in reality it was a cold and drafty place where Walt slept under newspapers. Better was the Hotel Regina by the Louvre, which he eventually moved to, and even better than that was the small village of Neuf Chateau with its quaint streets and shops. It's hard to believe it would only be five years later when Walt would arrive in California with his now-fabled suitcase in a dream immortalized in song on Buena Vista Street, Michael. Yes, never forget. Uh, in said suitcase was one of his Alice comedies, Alice's Wonderland, based on the Alice books by Lewis Carroll. Years later, Walt would say, quote, No story in English literature has intrigued me more than Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. It fascinated me the first time I read it as a schoolboy, and as soon as I possibly could after I started making animated cartoons, I acquired the film rights to it. Indeed, after several Alice comedies starring child actress Virginia Davis and the birth of Mickey Mouse in 1928, Walt would quickly acquire the film rights to John Tenniel's illustrations to the Alice in Wonderland books in 1931. Alice and Wonderland would be intertwined with Disney from the very beginning down to this day. At first, Walt developed a live-action animated hybrid production with silent film star Mary Pickford as Alice, going so far as doing costume tests with Pickford. A 1933 Paramount live-action production of Alice in Wonderland starring Gary Cooper, Cary Grant, W.C. Fields, and our lovable Sterling Holloway would put a stop to those plans, but Walt would consider Alice as an option for the animated medium. In 1936, Mickey would go through the looking glass in the short Through the Mirror, which 1980s Disney Channel subscribers would immediately recognize. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, Michael, have you ever seen that Paramount movie? I can't remember seeing that that sounds incredible i've seen at least clips of it i i don't think i've ever watched the whole thing but i've i've definitely seen clips of it very strange very, very strange. strange yes in 1935 walt and roy with their wives were off to europe for a grand european tour this would be walt's first time back in europe since world war one and a chance for Roy, and to a lesser degree Walt, to visit the offices of Disney Partners in European Distribution and Merchandising. Walt would meet with luminaries, socialites, and authors such as H.G. Wells. Also on the docket would be a visit to Lady Bridget Carlyle, who had recommended The Wind in the Willows as a subject matter, and once sent Walt the story along with the Peter Rabbit books by Beatrix Potter. Walt would walk in his own footsteps from decades before in France, and visit Switzerland, which would become a popular vacation spot for years to come. But perhaps the biggest consequence of Walt's visit to Europe would be 335 books he purchased of stories and art. Walt spent many days in Europe looking through various bookstores, as well as trying to catch his films in European theaters before dining out at night. Walt would send home the books, including illustrations by Arthur Rackham and Gustave Doré. Walt would become enchanted by European illustrators, and there would be a clear influence on the studio style moving forward. The books would form a backbone of the brand new animation library, and European illustrators would be brought in, such as Danish-born Kai Nielsen or Swedish illustrator Gustav Tengren, who would be instrumental in the look and feel of Snow White and Pinocchio. 
Back at home at the studio, Walt came back refreshed and ready to delve into his first feature film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. After Snow White became a huge success in 1937 and 38, Walt would look to many new ideas to follow Snow White. Walt was inspired by The Wizard of Oz and Frank Baum's Oz series of books. Unfortunately, the rights to Oz had been bought, and in 1939, due in large part to the success of Snow White, MGM's The Wizard of Oz would be released and become an instant classic. Walt tried to get the rights to the remaining Oz books for years and finally succeeded in 1951 in buying the rights to 11 Oz books. There were several ideas of Oz-related properties, from producing them for the Disneyland ABC TV show, a live-action movie, and even plussing the Fantasyland canal boats by having an Oz-themed interior to the once-proposed Big Rock Candy Mountain addition to Storybook Land. Oz fans would have to wait a while to see a Disney-produced Oz project in 1985's almost inexplicable Return to Oz. The one benefit of this movie is that it allowed the Wizard of Oz characters to eventually make their way into Storybook Land, but this time in Disneyland Paris's Fantasyland. Now, Michael, the Wizard of Oz just seems like a history of near misses with Disney. They they seem to match so well. I yeah, and this is something that really drives me crazy that they never used it in Walt's lifetime when they had the rights to do it. Uh, they made Return of Oz, Return to Oz, and then you know. A, However many years ago they did that Oz the Great and Powerful, right. which is based on nothing. It's ridiculous. Um, I grew up, when I was a kid, I was super into these books. Yeah. And, like, growing up and finding out that Disney had owned the rights to them and hadn't done anything with them just kills me. Because you just imagine what an a Walt-era production with all of his creative team would have been like it would have been wild i'm not too crazy about you know we've seen the um disneyland episode with the mouseketeers when he was going to do it with the mouseketeers and i'm not super crazy about that idea but like an animated project would have been amazing oh that would have been great uh and of course i I believe didn't we hear tony baxter talk one time about how great an oz attraction would be and that he kind of had worked out one yeah, he, I think, was when they were, he, he's probably tried to do it a few times over the years, but I know that when they were working on that Oz the Great and Powerful movie, he was kind of pitching it for the former Discovery Bay area, right now Galaxy's Edge, and like trying to do something Oz over there still. He's a huge Oz fan, so he's, I think, always been trying to make that happen somehow. And it involves his hot air balloons, you know, dating back. Gotta to have the, those hot air balloons. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it does seem unnatural. That that would be such a cool land and project. It's too bad. And and Michael, return to Oz. I mean, hopefully we will uh, address this in full someday. But a, a word about return to Oz from you. <laughs> what a crazy, crazy movie. Um, So freaky. Yeah. Terrifying. Maybe. Maybe we'll watch Return to Oz someday and talk about it, but who knows? Yeah, we we have to, and yes. Uh, Starting in 1938, Disney also picked Alice in Wonderland back up for consideration and would consider to chew on the right formula for years. 
While I could never quite get the right treatment for this movie, and never thought that his studio was living up to the material, in 1941, he brought the idea of a live actress portraying Alice back into the mix, but like a lot of projects underway, the Alice project was shelved with the onset of World War II. After the war, Walt and the studio recruited Aldous Huxley to write a screenplay called Alice and the Mysterious Mr. Carroll, which is a screenplay that sounds kind of like a Finding Neverland-style movie, part biography and part fantasy. It seems like it belongs in the, you know, in the recent history. It's interesting. Yeah, saving Mr. Carroll. Yeah. That, too, was shelved, and finally, in 1947, pre-production would begin on the all-animated Alice in Wonderland that would be released in 1951. And, of course, Disney made their first foray into the medium of television on the heels of Alice, with 1950s Christmas special One Hour in Wonderland spotlighting the upcoming release of Alice. Uh, Michael, it seems like they never quite got it down. Alice is just kind of... There's a lot of iconic things from Alice in Wonderland, but it, it seems like a hard thing for them to pin down with the kind of story that it is. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, well, it's an episodic story, and it's odd how many elements of that movie have made its way into Disney stuff, parks mm-hmm. and games mm-hmm. and music and everything. Even though it's, you know, it's it's you never hear anybody say it's their favorite movie. Right. And I think, like, even it's so crazy to me that Walt had this, like, lifelong like obsession with the story, loved the story so much, went out of his way to get the rights to it. And in the end, I don't think he liked the movie that much. Mm-hmm. It was kind of, oh, it was the first one they put on TV because they knew it wasn't like as valuable, like a commodity. Like you'd want something like Cinderella to be in theaters and exclusive and all this. And Alice, they'd would be the first thing they'd shovel on TV. It would be the first thing they'd shovel out on home video because they just didn't view it as, as valuable a commodity. And, uh, you know, it's a shame they never got it up to his standards because they worked so hard on it. And it's something that he would have been super into. Right. And yet, you know, to that point, he makes two attractions out of Alice eventually. So, you know, it's still there, um, you know, and, and it, and like I said, it lives on, you know, but a lot of those moments and things are definitely part of the lexicon for sure i think it lends itself better to a theme park ride than it does to a movie really because it's like a collection of things and places and random characters right and that plays a lot better in like in a dark ride and that dark ride is a great ride it is similar to alice jm barry's peter pan lived in walt's imagination and in production for years Walt had seen a touring version of the play in Marceline and, in fact, had played Peter Pan in a school production, a role which he said, quote, no actor ever identified with the part he was playing more than I. Uh, Walt had wanted to acquire the rights to Peter Pan since 1935 as a follow-up to Snow White, but was not successful in getting those rights until 1939. Uh, J.M. Barry lent those rights to, the, to a children's hospital, so they had to get the animated rights from that. Uh, Like Alice, this film would be delayed by World War II, but be back up in production by 1949 to follow up Alice in 1953. Starring Alice herself, Catherine Beaumont as Wendy. An even longer production was The Sword in the Stone, a 1938 story that would be brought to Walt by storyman Bill Peet. 
Walt immediately snatched up the rights to this movie in 1939. Again, being stalled by the war, this movie would not appear until 1963, being in development for decades with Pete guiding it through to the end. That's amazing. They just kept working on that. Yeah, they knew a good thing. Uh, The Sword in the Stone was chosen at the time because it was a cheaper option versus the story of Chanticleer, also involving Reynard the Fox. Ideas that would go round and round the studio for decades, finally influencing the style and uh, design of Robin Hood in the 70s. But another member of this class of 1939 was the story of Don Quixote, which was suggested by story researcher Diana Marsh, with art developed by Ecuadorian artist Eduardo Sola Franco. This would be shelved and picked up by legendary Disney artist Joe Grant in 1940, and by Walt himself in 1946, as well as in the 50s, as a live-action concept with Cary Grant as Quixote, which I hate they didn't make that. Oh, man, that would have been spectacular. Can you imagine? (laughs) Just, oh, that would have been perfect. Uh, To your point, the episodic nature of Quixote, I think the Alice failure kind of killed that idea as well for Walt. So... It would go in, and it would actually be picked up again in the late '90s by Disney, uh, but it never made on made it onto the silver screen, which I, which is a shame. That would be a great movie to watch. Uh, it yeah. would be hard to organize, I guess, uh, to their point. But I was so hyped for the most. Well, I don't know if it's the most recent, but the one in the late '90s, early aughts, with the uh, Britsy Brothers, yeah, who had Britsy done a lot of crazy stuff for the studio. Uh, very memorable things and who were were super talented. I really wanted to see that version. That would have been really great. Uh, I hate they didn't make that. A lot of great stuff they were working on in the 90s. Just uh, amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Michael Allen was not lost. Uh, In 1937, discussion began on development of Hans Christian Andersen stories by Walt in the studio. In 1941, Disney discussed joining in with MGM on a film that would highlight the life of Anderson in live action with animated retelling of his stories in a segmented motion picture. Uh, Kai Nielsen did sketches for the Little Mermaid portion of the film, but eventually this version of the film would be scrapped. MGM would go on to produce its live action film with Danny Kaye as Hans Christian Anderson, but Disney would wait until 1989's The Little Mermaid, using Nielsen's sketches as concept drawings for the hit film and giving him posthumous credit. I think this is so cool. And you can tell uh, by his sketches that they they use that as inspiration. It's really Mm -hmm. cool. Uh, Fantasia 2000 would feature The Steadfast Tin Soldier, which was another segment of the original 1941 Hans Christian Andersen treatment. As we mentioned before, Walt would frequently vacation in Europe and Switzerland in particular through the years, and we would see that influence bear out over time around Disneyland and Fantasyland in particular. Visits to Tivoli Gardens inspired Walt to consider landscaping, cleanliness, and a park-like environment in the park. Tivoli also inspired Walt to use canal boats, which I'm very thankful for. Walt would see monorails in Europe and Von Roll Skyway cars, as well as the Matterhorn Mountain, which Walt would be inspired to build a version of while visiting the set of the film Third Man on the Mountain. It seems every time Walt traveled to Europe, he was inspired, and like the changing course of his career, the inspiration changed through the years as well. 
Regardless, some of these stories, designs, and spaces have come to be the ones most associated with the Disney name through the years, and so, with the castle parks varying in great degree from land to land, with various offerings, you can always tell you're in Fantasyland wherever you are. mentioned, we're speaking this month with Tom K. Amaris, Imagineer and Imagineering Historian Extraordinaire, and uh, we wanted to talk to him a little bit about the Magic Kingdom's fantasy land, one that he got to experience as a young man. So, without further ado, here's Tom with some thoughts on our fantasy land, Magic Kingdom. This month on the podcast, we're talking about Fantasyland at Walt Disney World for the 50th anniversary. I would love to hear your perspective on this particular version and how it stood apart from Disneyland. Yeah, well, it was, you know, full scale. It was a, a certainly a larger Fantasyland, and in many ways it was more elaborate. I mean, beginning with the castle, um, but also things like the uh, Pinocchio Village House restaurant, you know, was really um impressive and elaborate and it had a second floor in it and it overlooked the loading area of it's a small world and all of that just seemed like wow it was so um extravagant you know just like this is how fantasy land should be it you know full-on half-timbered tyrolean um you know right out of pinocchio uh, with fantastic murals in it, by the way, as well. Um, so I think, you know, it was things like the castle and the Skyway station and the half of the Columbia Harbor house. I mean, that whole kind of area down there that had a fountain, as I recall, um, at one point and the castle, you know, it's just like, how do you even, where do you even begin? Cause it was so you know, so big <laughs> compared to the one right. at Disneyland and the murals inside were so gorgeous and the restaurant was incredible. So I think it had this sense of um, grandness to it. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we talk a little bit about the, the Pinocchio village house and how amazing it is, but uh, you know, you lived and worked in the wake of the Cinderella castle. Um, and it's obviously one of the clearest standouts it kind of became a corporate symbol. I mean, and you would have to work against it in Disneyland Paris when you were making its castle. Uh, how do you see the, the castle as a designer? I think it's a fantastic castle. And I didn't really feel like I was working against it as much as, um, because actually I was holding it as the gold standard, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, 
um, I can only hope and pray that this castle that I'm designing comes out, you know, half as good as the Florida castle. Uh, but I understand why they wanted to uh, make it different. It was very clear from the moment they sent me out on a, on a castle expedition um, to look at all those castles in the Loire Valley that the um, Cinderella castle was more or less kind of cobbled from, you know, right. uh, probably a dozen of those different castles. And so it was pretty clear from the outset that, that something had, you know, it had to be different in order to set itself apart and not just be a history lesson, I guess, um, of what is already there. So, but I kept in mind all the time um, the fact that the castle at Walt Disney World maintains this kind of perfect symmetry or asymmetry um, as you walk all the way around it, kind of like a good Christmas tree. You know, it doesn't have like right. holes in it or yeah. um, a bald spot like I have on the top of my head. <laughs> um, and so that was like, okay, it's got to, you know, it has to reach that, at, you know, if anything, it's got to meet that standard um, because the Cinderella castle is perfect from every angle and little Disneyland castle, which I love so much too, you know, it just has a couple of funny little spots, you know, that it's not as strong from. Um, so, uh, you know, it just, it was, uh, and, and, you know, at the time in my mind, it was Bill Martin, the architect and Herb Ryman, the, um, you know, conceiver, if you will, of it. I've since found out there were other people <laughs> very heavily involved in it, but I just was like, you know, I wanted to do Herbie and um, Bill Martin justice, um, you know, uh, and so that was just top of mind the whole time. Well, it's certainly a beautiful castle that you designed. You know, I, I, I always said when we went to Disneyland the first time, Michael and I were a lot older and uh, I was just stunned how the Matterhorn looked in every background when you're anywhere in the park. It looks great. Right. And it's the same with Cinderella Castle at Disney World. You're, you know, in, in front of Big Thunder Mountain, look back across the rivers of America over Liberty Square. It just kind of comes out on, on top of that. It's just really beautiful right. how they yeah. placed it in yeah. every background. And That's it stunning. never bothered me that it intruded on other lands. Um, right. You know, I mean, that's kind of more of an intellectual argument than it is an emotional right. argument. Right. And having that castle kind of as the centerpiece and the spot that, you know, always is the center of the park, I think, and it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's certainly plenty of areas where you're completely immersed in the Adventureland or Frontierland where you don't have the castle there, but there are sometimes, you know, when you see it, same with Space Mountain. Right, right. Um, and I happen to kind of like that for a Magic Kingdom style park. Um, not as much, you know, for an Animal Kingdom uh, mm -hmm. style park, you know, where you do want to kind of keep things, um, you know, you don't want to kind of mix up the plate too much. Uh, but I think for a magic kingdom park, you know, I, I kind of like the, I kind of like that energy. I agree. So you mentioned Herb Ryman and Bill Martin, who are some of the other folks that you have discovered that brought this castle to light that don't get as much credit? Well, the job captain on it was Glenn Durflinger and he was my, um, technically my 
well, he was my boss's boss, but he was the one who signed all of the trip authorizations and important um, kinds of documents. And um, Glenn started in 1965 uh, working on New Orleans Square and then became the job captain in 1960, probably eight, when they started up on the castle. Um, and he was the job captain for that. And so I interviewed him a couple of years ago. I didn't know that he was going to pass away um, about a month or two later. But I asked him because I was so interested in New Orleans Square and I had just started a book project that's now on hold about New Orleans Square and who, you know, I asked him, certainly Bill Martin, um, you know, was the architect on record. But at the time, he was so busy with so many different projects. Uh, he probably, you know, I just guessed or surmised that he wasn't the one sitting down and drafting up all of the individual um, facades and elevations for it. And I thought, you know, this is kind of a, um, sometimes it's dangerous to ask that question because the person you're asking the question can easily take the credit <laughs> for it, especially, you know, as a job captain. And he uh, said it was a guy named Ted Rich. And I'm like, who? I had never heard that name before. And, um, and he said, yes, Ted Rich did all of the, developed all of the elevations for New Orleans Square for Bill on behalf of Bill, but he was the guy who sat down and, you know, did every courtyard and every balcony. And, oh, wow. uh, and he said, and he said, and he's also the guy who designed the, the castle in Florida, Cinderella castle. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> Big name. And, and he really, I mean, Glenn really could have taken credit for that. Cause he, you know, he was, he signed all of those drawings as the job captain. And um, he said, no, Ted worked on, he was the guy behind New Orleans Square and Cinderella Castle. And, you know, Herbie did his, his initial sketch, which really doesn't, you know, bear much resemblance. There are certain, you know, uh, things in spirit that were uh, transferred into it. But um, it was Ted Rich who sat down and cobbled all of those, you know, Loire Valley castles together. And, um, and, and it was the first thing done for Walt Disney World, as a matter of fact. So huh. in some of the earliest photos, you, you've probably seen photos of Bill Martin and John Hench and Bob Brown um, around uh, a small model of Walt Disney World. Then there's a large, larger scale castle hmm. uh, model. And that is the summer of 1967, um, really just, you know, the earliest, earliest part of Walt Disney World's design. And it's pretty much what was... Um, built. <laughs> wow. And it was built off of Ted's drawings, which, um, you know, two, two of the elevations I've seen. Um, and the only thing that's different is that there was a um, surprise, surprise, just like every project, there was a, a value engineering or, a, you know, a, a point where they had to um, reduce some of the, the things on it. And there was a, he had put a cathedral just like all of the other castles kind of have, um, you know, a little Disneyland, I think you could say it's a little chapel on the side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what Ted had designed was a larger chapel, you know, and more evocative, even more evocative of Notre Dame. And that was, um, and that was going to be like on the right side, as you look at the castle from Main Street, in the middle on the right is where he had that place. And that 
uh, I guess it was just, you know, too much, a little too much because they had, you know, a moment at the magic kingdom where they had to say, okay, we're going to have to sacrifice this, this, sure. this. So uh, it's pretty much what he, you know, the castle that you see today is pretty much what he drew. I think there's an elevation of it. One elevation of it I've seen on someone's Pinterest <laughs> board. <laughs> so it's floating around the internet somewhere. Um, it's not a very good resolution, right. um, but you can definitely see, I don't know, know if you can see his initials at the, in the corner that it just says, he, he signed everything TR. So I went back and I looked at the New Orleans square drawings and, um, you know, the preliminaries and sure enough, there's a little TR wow. uh, on all of those elevations. So, um, okay, well, that's one person telling me that it's a guy named Ted Rich who I've never heard of before. Yeah. And unfortunately, like, you know, Marty had just passed away and Marty and I had been emailing and talking, you know, all things history and, and personalities. And so I didn't have Marty um, to go to. And uh, Glenn had just passed away, the person who told me it was Ted Rich. And I just by chance met Tanya McKnight at a, a Ryman Arts fundraiser. And I had not heard of Tanya either, Tanya McKnight. And so I'm talking to this person I'd never heard of before who says that she had a lot to do with New Orleans Square and Club 33 and all of the interiors and worked closely with Dorothea Redman and Ron Brown before he passed away. <laughs> and she's mentioning all these names and all of a sudden she throws out Ted Rich <laughs> as the castle designer. And I'm like, okay, well, that's two now. Right, right. <laughs> uh, you know, plus the initials I've seen. So I, I, I think that's good enough. Um, I'm actually talking to Ted Rich's daughter who's oh, fantastic and, great uh, yeah so um and sh she's uh, validating a lot of this as well he started um i have a feeling he was brought over by herb ryman he might have been a friend of herbs or, you know, or an associate you know they might have worked together at mgm um because mm -hmm. ted goes way back all the way to wizard of oz and um and unfortunately, he passed away in 1969 or 1970. A whole slew mm. of really great talent passed away between the time that Walt went and the time his brother went. And mm -hmm. I have a theory that these are the folks that were already um, into cigarette smoking and tobacco to the point where it was too late because the, right. all of the news reports about its ill effects were just you know, coming out around 1964, 65, 66. And for some of these guys that were in their mid sixties, it was too late. Yeah. And, and so Ted, I think was one of those folks that, um, and, and so did Ron Brown. He was only 39 years old. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. He went a year after Walt did. So, so I guess uh, that's why we have this sort of lost generation of people that aren't, aren't really known because they kind I think of were gone in that period. Yes, yes, because the, the giants of Walt Disney World's design, oh, well, you know, I, I really should have written this down, so I'm going to do this at the top of my head, and I'm going to uh, insult the, the soul of some, <laughs> or the angel of, uh, some past Imagineer. But, um, you know, they, the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, um, you know, they use the same strategy that, that – we did with Disneyland Paris and, and what all of the magic kingdom parks have done is, you know, there's an art director for each land. I didn't know that. I thought, 
I kind of thought Tony invented that with Disneyland Paris, but I found mm. out no, that goes all the way back to Disneyland and also goes back to um, Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom. And so it was Bill Martin kind of as an overall um, art director for the entire Magic Kingdom park. John Hench was kind of over Bill in a, in a you know, very um, supervisory role for the whole resort. Um, and then the lands, um, you know, each had an art director. So Main Street was Fred Hope and uh, Adventureland was Howard Brummett. And, and these guys did do a lot of sketching, especially Howard Brummett. Um, and uh, Chuck Mile was huh. the art director for both Frontierland and Liberty Square. But Ted Rich was supposed to be the art director for Liberty, for Liberty Square. And then he passed away. Hmm. Uh, so Chuck Mile took over Liberty Square and then Fantasyland was Bill Martin and Tomorrowland was Dick Green. Wow. And then there was a lot of great, um, you know, in addition to the talent that we all know about, like Herb Ryman and John Hench and Dorothea Redmond and Mary Blair, et cetera, were the, you know, architectural draftsmen or architectural designers, um, uh, you know, that I'm finding out quite a bit about, you know, who, who kind of shepherded what, Sure. except for the haunted mansion, which I suspect was Claude, <laughs> but, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's just an incredible slate of people whose names aren't known. I mean, the only name of that that we really know is mile because he's on a tombstone at the haunted mansion. Right. And, yeah. and that's his only, uh, claim to fame. Yeah. Fan and he life. started, you know, he, he came from 20th century Fox and, and, was at WED in 1950, um, actually like 53, I think. Not very long. He was there um, just long enough to help Marvin Davis um, develop some of the elevations for Main Street. And then I think he got a gig back at the 20th Century Fox. And so he was maybe there for a year. But then he came back in 1961 or 62 to help out with the World's Fair and um, okay. and did some of the Disneyland stuff of the mid sixties and then did Walt Disney world. And he was also in charge. I think he was somewhat in charge of the architectural designers. Hmm. It's, it's a, it's an amazing trove that you've uncovered. Uh, well, you know, Cinderella castle in Florida is one of the few Disney castles not to have an attraction of its own. Uh, whereas your castle in Paris famously has this really neat dragon lurking below. <laughs> Do you think there's a value added in making the castles places that guests can physically? Yes, uh, definitely. Because I think it's what people have in mind when they see it. You know, it's the first thing that, you know, can we go in there? And uh, Walt learned it a little, not the hard way, because they just ran out of time and money. Um, but certainly that was like one of the very first things that people were asking is, how come we can't go into the castle? So I wanted to make sure especially after having done this research trip and saw how popular um, all of the castles are. So even though it's Cole's a new, new castle, it, they're still really <laughs> cool um, places that both um, foreign visitors and locals, locals will take their relatives from out of town, um, you know, into one of these historic castles and they all, you know, want to go upstairs, there's almost always a lookout point where you can take pictures. 
or have your picture taken, you know, up on the balcony or whatever. So I observed, you know, pretty early on that this was going to be something that was going to be expected of the one in Paris. And I kind of had hoped as a kid when I visited Walt Disney World the first time that that would be the case for the castle. Uh, you know, I did go to the restaurant and that was mind blowing. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, as a 12 year old, I'm also thinking I sure would like to, you know, kind of explore and, and, you know, go down. Is there a dungeon? Uh, you know, you want to go right. see what's behind all the doors and, you know, peek through the windows and everything. Um, so, I, you know, I was slightly disappointed about that, but, you know, it was more than made up for by the mosaic murals and the right. restaurant and the two big shops and just all of the beautiful angles uh, that you could take pictures from never ending, you know, um, and I only had three rolls of film. So, oh, man, <laughs> man, that's, you know, rough. you have to decide, you have to make choices right. about what you're going to take pictures of. <laughs> uh, the other thing I thought that was very impressive about, Fantasyland was um, twenty thousand leagues. Although it wasn't operating the first day, I uh, you know on the day that I went there um, on October first, nineteen seventy one, it was not operating. Um, you could see the boats out there, and it's like wow, you know. Um, but I didn't go on it until a couple years later, and it was still extremely impressive. Another thing that I, was a standout was the two different Mister Toad rides. Gosh, and, yes. And going on both of them and and then seeing how they were kind of intermingled in the middle. Uh, that that was impressive. Um, the Snow White ride itself, too, was very impressive. You know, it seemed much longer. Both of those rides seemed longer hmm. uh, than what was at Disneyland. And it seemed like they had more, you know, just more sophisticated, more special effects. And, um, yeah, it was uh, it was very, very... Impressive. As we continue to celebrate Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary, it's time for us to cast our eyes to that most magical land of them all and remember the magic of Fantasyland's past. Fantasyland has seen many changes over the years. The removal of beloved attractions, an ever-changing roster of shops and eateries, and of course, a massive reimagining in the last decade. So let's turn back the clock and examine some of those fond memories of days gone by when the munchies and crunchies flowed and a trip to hell was just a dream and a sea ticket away. We'll begin our exploration outside the castle walls with a lost attraction that we didn't mention in our discussion of Main Street USA. These were the Plaza Swan Boats, which once plied the waters of the hub area in front of the castle. The boats were quite picturesque. Envision something like a jungle cruise boat with a large sculpted swan at its prow. 
Each of the 12 boats were named for a different prominent female Disney character, and for most of the attractions run, it was staffed solely by female cast members. This was opposed to the Jungle Cruise, which used to be exclusively piloted by males. Although they had been planned since before the Magic Kingdom even opened, and were originally touted for a summer debut in 1972, the Swan Boats didn't make their official opening until May 20th, 1973, although they seem to have operated sporadically both before and after that date. The problem may have been their advanced guidance system, which steered the boats down the canal via electrified wires, not too dissimilar in theory to the wireless attraction vehicles of today. According to Mike Lee at Widen Your World, this system was replaced by giving control of the boats back to the drivers, who steered via jets of water that could rotate a full 360 degrees beneath the hull. Ironically, this is not unlike how the friendship launches at Epcot are steered, which is a bear to learn, but pretty intuitive once you get the hang of it. The 17-minute attraction took you around the waters of the hub before taking a side trip into Adventureland, where the boat's path circled the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse. Along the way, the hostess would deliver a live spiel, pointing out items of interest along the way. Jeff, I really wish this was still there. It sounds so chill. Yeah, I mean, it just uh, imagining the the look of it alone. But yeah, just to be able to go through that little loop around the treehouse between the Crystal Palace, that would have been a pretty cool little trip and, re- and really beautiful. So been I wish it was neat. still there. Yeah, and uh, you know, the early pictures of the park before the foliage had grown in, you could really see this waterway going all the way around the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. And, you know, people crossing that bridge to go to the treehouse with the swan boats going underneath. It's a nice little layers of motion to the land, which you know I like. I like those layers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, it was pretty neat. Of course, uh, many of those waterways are now long gone because of uh, the hub remodel of recent decades. Right. That's right. another story. Uh, There were no show elements along the path aside from the park itself, but back in 1972, Disney PR guru Charlie Ridgway told the Orlando Sentinel that miniature villages may be constructed at canal shorelines to provide extra sites for swan boaters. Well, that kind of answers a question about where storybook land was in the uh, Magic Kingdom that I always wondered. Uh, Maybe this was a substitute for it. Yeah, that's... it's. Pretty clearly uh, what they had in mind. In fact, I had f- found a memo that from early on that they were going to actually call it the like the Storybook Land Plaza Swan Boats or something like that. Hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know what happened to that idea, but it just seems like they never really got around to it. But at the very beginning, that seems to have been kind of their motivation there. So. Unfortunately, the boats suffered from unreliable control systems, low capacity, and apparently were expensive to maintain, and so they quickly went to seasonal operation only. This is one of those uh, long wait for an unimpressive ride, I guess, that drove yeah. them satisfaction. It's interesting we see this happen again, you know, what, 30 years or 20 years later, right? Or with the Discovery uh, river boats at animal kingdom almost the same thing right great yeah. and it looks so exciting when you see it you know when we come in the park at animal kingdom and then you wait an hour to get on it and nothing really happens right right exactly and that was the day when 
you know, the park's capacity was much lower, and so people were really looking for things to do, so they would line up for this. Yeah, very much like the Discovery River boats in many ways, which is just ironic. Uh, they operated on a seasonal basis until 1983 when they were unceremoniously retired. There was a brief hope of a revival, however, when Imagineering pitched a project called Fantasia Gardens, which would have lined the boat's route with topiary scenes from Fantasia, accompanied by fountains and a musical soundtrack. Sadly, this was not approved by park management because it couldn't find a sponsor, and the swan boats never returned. That would have been neat. Oh, yeah. Count me in for that. I don't know how popular that would have been either, but it would have been very popular with me. Exactly. Yeah, right up my alley. <laughs> so that's what matters. Yeah. But uh, now let's step inside Cinderella Castle, see what's happening there. To work up a little hunger before we go upstairs, let's stop in the King's Gallery, a shop which opened in 1972 on the left side of the breezeway through the castle. This was a really cool store. It uh, really subscribed to the idea of showpiece merchandise that we discussed on our Liberty Square episode, the notion that merchandise locations could be a big part of the Disney-themed show. Uh, this was a shop that had full-size suits of armor, and uh, even armor for a horse. If you needed that, you could pick some of that up. Uh, imported wow. European clocks, chess sets, and jewelry were all on offer, as were swords. A lot of swords, yes. Yeah, get a sword, man. It's vacation. <laughs> you could get coats of arms, too, if I recall correctly. And it was great. Uh, in digging around for info... I found this bizarre mention from the Orlando paper from 1993 that I wanted to read. This was in a fashion column in the lifestyle section. And I quote, suggestions about where to purchase snoods, those mesh hair coverings that hark back to medieval times, continue to trickle in. <laughs> Here's one more. A black snood with gold and pearl trim is available for $32 in King's Gallery, a shop in Cinderella's Castle in the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. What was going on what? in 1993? <laughs> I mean, there was kind of a medieval dress, like Renaissance dress thing that happened. I guess the snood was the male equivalent. But, I mean, wouldn't this be the first idea of where to find a snood yeah. if you were going to look? <laughs> yeah. I just love that they were trickling in as if, you know, right. uh, this is such a phenomenon that people are still buzzing about snoods and Another uh, finding snood location. Uh, lots of places in the central Florida area to buy them. Right. Uh, Apparently. And this shop was, this shop was so cool. Uh, like you said, it just looks so neat. And it was also the uh, another Rebus Brothers glass blowing place for a while. That's right. Yeah. So uh, that, you know, those places are always cool. Always very medieval. The Mexican Pavilion, too, Main Street. So, man, yeah, this, this uh, felt like a place of great status for sure. <laughs> it surely did. It had that real medieval hall feel. And uh, yeah, it was great. I miss it a lot. Unfortunately, uh, Sadly, the King's Gallery closed in 2002 to make way for the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique, where you can't even buy a sword. Come on. What's the, what's the point? Um, so, anyway, uh, much beloved shop gone now. You want to try and forget the sadness by popping upstairs for a luncheon? I think we should. And uh, what better place to get lunch than 
King Stephen's Banquet Hall. It was the place to dine in style in the Magic Kingdom. And this is a place where VIPs were taken when they were in the park to experience fine dining. Uh, on opening day, you could get appetizer, entree, rolls, salad, and dessert for four seventy-five. The most expensive venue in the park, Michael. Man, just milking that concession, man. That's right. I'll take it. Uh, during your meal, you may have been entertained by the Madrigal Singers. This was a quintet of five singers put together by George Carroll, who we mentioned previously as the music director responsible for the Fife and Drum Corps, amongst other things. Now, this group would play the Liberty Tree Tavern in colonial garb and then go to King Stephens where they wore medieval attire. So they uh, stayed busy. But Yeah, okay. Prime rib was a specialty, of course. Uh, and another time, I'll have to try making the walnut bread because that got a lot of recipe requests frequently. Um, the walnut bread. So it looks easy to make. Perhaps you could have crepes sherwood, which seems like a minty chocolatey concoction. And man, when the crepes craze hit Walt Disney World, it hit it pretty hard, Michael. <laughs> it really did. I know that, uh, I guess, I can't remember where it was, where they had the citrus crepes. So I think uh, that was at Town Square that was uh, a restaurant, Square. which we right. didn't mention last time. The crepes ambrosia, which, you know. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, it must have been a fad. Seventy. Uh, where was the fondue? I mean, you got the crepes. If you're going yeah. full 70s, got to have some fondue. <laughs> That's right. I think overall the wrap on this restaurant has been the decor outmatches the food. Perhaps this wasn't quite the case right after it opened, I'm not sure. But the decor is certainly grand. The stained glass windows look out on the castle courtyard and bathe the room in natural light. And you have the beautiful gothic dark timberwork in there. A dome ceiling with another row of stained glass at the top. Also, the room is covered in coats of arms of various Imagineers and management family crests including John Hinch, Dick Nunes, and Mark Davis. Uh, if memory serves, Michael, didn't they used to have a paper that listed all the coats of arms? That rings a bell. Uh, that uh, that seem seems to familiar that. to me. Yeah, I, I mean, I, had, I don't think I've been there since it changed from King Stephens uh, to the Cinderella thing. But, um, yeah, that, that does ring a bell. But, yeah, the whole place gives it the feel of heraldry throughout. That's right. We we did have a chance to dine as kids at King Stephens, and uh, at least once they had these cool glass mugs. We got one of. They had Mickey coat of arms on them. You know. Oh yeah, oh, cool. very nice, cool. very formal. Uh, one interesting thing to note about King Stephens Banquet Hall is that King Stephen was Sleeping Beauty's father. Uh, whether or not this was a clerical error. Or due to accounts I've read where they attribute it to the fact that Cinderella's father have no name, I'm not really buying that, personally. What do you think, yeah. Michael? Daddy Charming. King Charming. <laughs> right. King Charming's uh, Banquet Hall. Uh, yeah, that was always the weird, like, little bit of trivia of, like, oh, wait, yes, it's King Stephens, but he's from another movie entirely. That, that was an odd choice for them. Yeah. Uh, regardless, the restaurant would host Mary Costa, who was the voice of Sleeping Beauty, in a 1986 appearance promoting the re-release of that movie. We mentioned in a previous episode that President Jimmy Carter would make a speech in front of the castle, which he had a reception in the banquet hall beforehand. Anwar Sadat's wife would dine on prime rib on a trip to the park in 1975, and so on and so forth. The dipl diplomatic uh, That's right. <laughs> feeding ground. That's right. 
Uh, finally, in April of 1997, the restaurant would be renamed Cinderella's Royal Table, and so it remains to this day. If you don't feel like trying to get a reservation here and never have been, I would at least advise going and peeking into the waiting area downstairs and past the reception desk. It's very beautiful. They have a winding staircase and a balcony, and luckily, all of it is still not covered in character decor. It feels very much like King Stephens to this day, so... Go check it out. There's a nice little spiral staircase. It's really beautiful. Yeah, I'll have to go there sometime. Revisit. from the castle into its courtyard area, we're surrounded by a number of shops which have changed repeatedly over the years. To our immediate right, we would have once found Merlin's Magic Shop, the second magic shop you'd encounter in the Magic Kingdom, and the third place we've come upon where you could buy those trademark spooky masks. They loved spooky masks. Big sellers. Big sellers, apparently. In addition, you could find magic tricks, puzzles, and books, and the cast members would perform magic for you. A very cool idea that is, again, much missed. In 1986, the magic shop was converted to Mickey's Christmas Carol, which unsurprisingly sold Christmas merchandise year-round. It lasted a decade before becoming part of the new Sir Mickey's retail location in 1996. Next door, as we head closer to the carousel, was the Aristocats, a 1971 <laughs> original which sold gifts, clothing, and souvenirs with a capital A and a capital C, oddly enough, uh, styled. I don't know why. It lasted until 1996 as well when it combined with its neighbor to form Sir Mickey's. This puzzled me. I mean, it lasted, uh, you know, 20, over 20, about 25 years. And, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, why was it the Aristocats? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I love that I'm it's not it. like the Aristocat shop or right. it's just it's the Aristocats. The, the Aristocats. Uh, yeah, I, that, that was always kind of a puzzler, but uh, yeah, mysterious. Across the path to our left as we exit the castle was another 1971 location, Tinkerbell's Toy Shoppy. True to its name, it was a toy and gift shop. In 1992, it was renamed Tinkerbell's Treasures, and in 2008, part of it split off to become the Castle Couture Princess Merchandise Location. In 2010, the entire former Tinkerbell footprint became Castle Couture, and apparently in 2019, the whole shebang became a check-in area for Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique. Who knew? Wait, no Couture anymore? Hmm. No Couture anymore. And you got that Cinderella fountain right outside there. It's just glorious little spot. A nice spot, yes. Yeah. Always take a moment with... That was one of the stops uh, when I took the Wonders of Walt Disney World tour when I was a kid, back when they did that, which was amazing. And they gave you a little uh, Kodak disc camera for the day uh -huh. to take nice. pictures of uh, whatever you saw fit. 
and they would train you to like, you know, frame things and stuff. And one of the things they taught you was to frame the Cinderella fountain so that they're on the um, mural behind her, there's like a little crown. And if you get, the, get at the right angle, you can make the crown like sit on her head. And that was one of the things they taught us to do. A little insider trick there. Well, you know, uh, only through the eyes of the child was she a princess, <laughs> Michael. Ooh. Wow. Think about it. Think about Far it. Far out, man. Layers. <laughs> Before we... Uh, that's That blew my mind. Uh, before we pass the carousel, we should mention a bit of entertainment which used to take place on this spot from 1994 until 2006. Something I'm pretty surprised they haven't kept going. That is the Sword in the Stone ceremony, which is a little show that went on in the area around where the Sword and the Stone sit to this day. Merlin the Wizard would come out and recruit adults to pull the sword from the stone uh, when they would invariably fail. He'd pick a little kid who would succeed and get a medal that they could wear home. Apparently, since New Fantasyland opened, they've revived this idea on occasion just without Merlin. Um, but uh, it's not a regular thing anymore. But that's a little little fun bit of placemaking that they should bring back. Oh, man. That was, uh, I love that show. And, you know, I worked on the carousel. I'd see it happen all the time. It's so cool. And then they would have little bits of, you know, pyrotechnics that would happen sometimes. Merlin would be up on the roof. Um, great Ooh, wow. stuff. I don't understand why they would take it away because uh, the sword and the stone is still there, but hopefully they'll just bring it back. It's just still there, so maybe they'll do it. Uh, of course, you do have the carousel there, as it has always been. A beautiful restoration of a 1917 Philadelphia Toboggan Company carousel. Originally slated for Belle Isle Park in Detroit, it lived for years in Olympic Park in Maplewood, New Jersey, and it was called the Liberty Carousel. It was one of the nation's largest carousels, and Walt was approached to buy it before his death. Restoration was done by a team including legendary Imagineer Joyce Carlson, and molds would be made of the horses to cast for Tokyo, and some chariots that were not originally included were put on the carousel in Disneyland Paris, so its legacy lives on around the world. It's just such a cool, big, old carousel. Yeah, that's just some amazing history that, uh, you know, it's over 100 years old now. That's right. Celebrated Centennial not that long ago. Uh, behind the carousel originally lay Dumbo in its original state. Uh, this was kind of basic for years until the folks at Disneyland Paris debuted their design and it was shipped back without the water feature to Florida. Um, behind Dumbo was the Fantasy Fair stage and the tournament tent. Uh, the tournament tent was off to the right and served snacks for the folks enjoying their entertainment under the separate tent. This included a stage that rose from the tunnels below, which, you know, I'm always obsessed with, just <laughs> yeah. like the Tomorrowland Terrace. It's a hallmark. Now, I consider the most iconic show that took place here was the Aristocat show, just from the visuals alone. All the trippy colored cats with real guitars on. I wish I had audio of this show because it looks incredible. Yeah, I really wish that... Uh we had rec like live recordings of that. That is the, the show that I always think of for this location because in pretty much all the early promo photos that show this location, that was what was going on. The hippie That's right. cats. That's right. Oh man. Yeah. And like super vintage gear that makes me jealous. Yeah. Uh, coming up totally. to the rising stage. Uh, you may have also caught some other Fantasyland entertainment here because, like all the other lands, it was full of them. 
Uh, the most prevalent was probably the Pearly Band from Mary Poppins, who would travel around the land and perform. I really miss seeing the Pearly Band. Uh, a lot of these bands included members from the marching band, shuffled up and sent around the lands in the afternoons to perform in different ensembles. There was also the Polka Band and the Briny Boys, which was uh, based on the recently released Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which <laughs> I hate. I missed that. That's like an sure. underwater band and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. How How is that? Also, Fantasyland was home to the Kids Next Door, who performed five times daily at the Fantasyland Terrace, as Fantasy Fair was originally called. Uh, they were an up-with-people would-be act that wore unitards. Uh, they were a previously <laughs> existing group that were a spin-off of the first kids' show choir in America, the Young Americans. And they seemed to be a precursor to the Kids of the Kingdom act that would perform for years. This group is also featured on the grand opening special of Walt Disney World, where they sing this song about how there's more, 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 and it goes they're all over the place. It's quite stunning, so check it out. Uh, but they were directed by John Beale, who was another legendary Disney music director who worked on tons of attractions and films. Perhaps we need to have him in for an interview, Mike. Oh, absolutely. Get the scoop on those kids. That'd be a good one. The kids uh, next door. The kids know? next door. All day, every day. Uh, in later years, this area would be absorbed into a small Little Mermaid-themed area at the edge of the 20,000 Leagues Lagoon. There would be a statue of Triton placed in the lagoon, and at Ariel's Grotto, you could go in and meet Ariel yourself in her fin form. Afterwards, if you were hungry, you could cool off at Scuttle's Landing, which specialized in snow cones, and take a load off in the Fantasy Fair tent, unaware of the fact that the Aristocats and the kids next door tread the boards years before. So that wraps up the first half of our Fantasyland themed episode, and it's the time of the podcast where we check in with Michael to see if anyone's signed up for our Patreon. Michael, has anyone signed up? Oh yes, this month we welcome four new members. Uh, we welcome Aaron, Matt, Chuck, and Lucas all to the club. Uh, very much thank you all for joining you all are making it possible for us to do all these episodes and as we mentioned at the top our live episode which will be this month on april the 24th lots of uh photos and videos and silliness themed towards fantasy land this month so we appreciate your input and if you're interested of course uh, join us at patreon.com slash progress city usa that's right, and thank you all for supporting us and doing what we do. We love doing this show and sharing information. I love learning things for this. Um, and like I said earlier, uh, let us know your thoughts about what we're doing at our email podcast at progresscityusa.com. We welcome feedback, uh, especially you know, doing an episode a week that's a little shorter. What do you think? Uh, let us know. Uh, be sure to rate 
review us on any podcasting platform. It helps us out. And uh, we will be back next week. Next week, Michael. Weekly. Can't believe it. Uh, with the second half of our Fantasyland episode. So, from all of us to all of you, stay magical. Do your wishes. And uh, we will see you again next week. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks Thanks for for joining us. us. They call it Progress, Progress. Our time is at an end. We'll be seeing you again next time at Progress, Progress. Meet in Progress City, USA. You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour. Created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at ProgressCityUSA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.